Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. John Lauk is with us today. He is editor of Middle West Review, and he teaches history and political science at University of South Dakota. His previous books are From Warm Center to Ragged Edge, The Erosion of Midwestern Regionalism, and Prairie Republic, The Political Culture of Dakota Territory, 1879 to 1889. His new book is The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900, our topic today. Welcome, Editor Lauk. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. We jump right into the book here. You refer in your introduction to, quote, the prevailing atmosphere of disdain and indifference, as you put it, uh, relative to the American Midwest. Uh, what do you mean? What is that attitude? Who, who, who has that attitude? Well, the Midwest has a hard time being taken seriously uh, in the centers of power, the corridors of power in New York, where a lot of decisions are made about what is broadcast on our televisions and what books are published and what books are reviewed. And uh, this problem is not new. It goes back a century or more. And um, you can see the neglect of the Midwest reflected in really the absence of any organized study of the Midwest until about the last five or six years. Um, hmm. Finally, in 2014, uh, a group of people in the Midwest got together and organized a Midwestern History Association to give some shape to the study of the region. Uh, but prior to that, there was no organized study of the region, unlike the South or the West or New England, which uh, has uh, a tremendous number of assets in terms of uh, publishing centers and people who write about it. So yeah. uh, to make the, a long story short, I decided it was time for at least one book about the history of the Midwest and what it was. So we have a better and more complete understanding of American history. Yeah. You've been, you, you go back to the late 18th century. What was the Northwest Ordinance of 1787? Well, that was the founding charter for the Midwest, in essence. It was uh, a bill passed by the Continental Congress setting up a framework for how the Midwest would be governed. And uh, the states that followed, Ohio first, and then Indiana, and then down the line, had to comply with the provisions of the Northwest Ordinance. And there were great things in the Northwest Ordinance in terms of the development of the Midwest, uh, such as 
the creation of independent states. These new states in the Midwest will n- would not merely be appendages of Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, et cetera. There was a great deal of civil rights um, um, guarantees put into the Northwest Ordinance. And I think most of all, in terms of shaping the region in comparison to other regions, uh, was the banning of slavery in the new Midwest, which gave uh, permanent shape to the political culture of the region. And, and the, the Southern uh, uh, slaveholders and, and officials, they didn't, they didn't stop that. They didn't try to prevent well, that. They, def- they definitely tried, and okay. this was very unpopular in the South because it created a very distinct contrast uh, with their region and just uh, put the spotlight on the South and its failures and its racial oppression. Um, and over time, this became even more heated uh, when Mississippi uh seceded from the Union when the Civil War finally came, one of their first complaints and their list of complaints causing them to leave the Union was the existence of the Northwest Ordinance, which created this negative contrast that they did not like. And it created a rallying point for Midwesterners in terms of what the uh, freedoms were that were guaranteed in the Midwest and, and what the Midwest was not. And This also animated many Midwestern attempts to help slaves who escaped across the Ohio River into Ohio, for example. And uh, this became the basis of a lot of Midwestern protests against slavery. Yeah. Just a a broad question, Uh, John. How, if the Midwest begins roughly in, uh, well, Western Pennsylvania, how far west does the Midwest go? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Mark. Uh, There is a a great book out called The Interior Borderlands, which uh, sets forth all the reasons for the ending of the Midwest at around the 98th meridian or 100th meridian, somewhere in there, Uh, which if you look at a map, that line roughly bisects the Dakotas, Nebraska, and Kansas. In uh, South Dakota, where I'm from, it's very common to talk about East River, South Dakota, which is Midwestern, and West River, South Dakota, or west of the Missouri River, which is very much a Western terrain. Uh, That's where the cowboys begin and the mountains begin and, uh, you know, ranching starts. So around the 98th meridian. When when I lived in Colorado, someone someone told me that... uh... Uh, the West begins where the corn stops. <laughs> the, uh, uh, well, you know, I, I don't know yes. if that before. Maybe that was before modern, you know, uh, irrigation uh, yeah. uh, uh, systems, you know, but. but uh, no, uh, that's so we'll, that makes a lot of sense. And there are good maps of where corn is produced in the United States. And it really tracks with what the Midwest is. And in yeah. recent years, as you kind of allude to this region is stretching slowly toward the West uh, because of better hybrid seeds and, um, you know, better uh, farming techniques. One thing you note, uh, I mean, apart from the the anti-slavery issue, is that in the Midwest, we had circumstances in those early decades that produced really a model for the rest of the country of religious tolerance 
and pluralism. What was going on there? Well, that's right. Uh, people forget that uh, New England, after it was settled, uh, was dominated by the Congregational Church or the Old Puritan Church, as more people uh, know it by. Uh, but in the Midwest, the religious groups were highly mixed. Of course, you had your contingent of New England Congregationalists, but you also had uh, uh, groups of Episcopalians from the South, and you had backcountry Presbyterians and Methodists. And soon after the Midwest was formed, you have new groups moving in like German Lutherans and German Catholics and Irish Catholics. And yeah. that meant that the uh, the Midwest became a real melting pot. And uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with this uh, uh famous political theorist, uh, Horace Callan, who, as it turns out, grew up in Wisconsin, and he coined this term, uh, cultural pluralism, in which he used to describe places like Wisconsin, which was highly varied in terms of ethnic groups and religious groups, as compared to places on the East Coast, like Virginia, controlled by the Episcopalians or the old Anglican church and New England states, which were dominated by the Congregationalists. So that was yeah. a great contrast. Uh, you, you characterize the resulting public square in these Midwestern towns as, quote, Victorianism adjusted to frontier conditions and American pragmatism. Uh, what did that combination look like more concretely? Well, Victorianism uh, instilled a basic moral code that people were to follow, but it wasn't as uh, structured and it wasn't as oppressive as you might find in Old England itself. There were certainly modifications made and adjustments made out on the frontier, but it created a baseline of uh, moral behavior that was instilled in small country uh, churches and small country schools, and it obviously uh, was less aristocratic than you would find in England. It was modified to the purposes of the agrarian Midwest, and so obvious uh, adjustments were made for um, more difficult conditions on the frontier. But there was a general societal respect and adherence to a moral code that uh, that defined these early states. One of the characteristics of that uh, moral code of the Victorianism, in spite of the the sometimes uh, crude conditions of these places, is that there was a whole lot of book reading, wasn't there? Yeah, that was really striking when I uh, began to do the research for this project. Um, after building a church in a country school, one of the first structures that went up in towns uh, was a library. And uh, many towns went to great lengths to uh, build up their libraries, which were private libraries at first that most people could access, and then they became public libraries. And then by the end of the 19th century, they became more elaborate structures. Uh, but this was all uh, made necessary by the thirst or hunger for books on the frontier. And there were statistics that I found uh, 
very interesting that the uh, most frontier cabins uh, in the Midwest had at least five or six books, and these were not books that uh, were to be sneezed at. Uh, these were the classics of Western civilizations. They were uh, histories of Greece and Rome. Uh, they were prominent writers, uh, Whittier and Hawthorne, and of course, um, we we have uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin because she lived in Ohio and that was impressed upon her. And of course, a Bible. A Bible was probably the first thing that, the first book uh, that many of these frontier cabins had. And so uh, by the end of the century, you can see the degree of commitment to books and libraries and a literary culture in the Midwest by the extreme high number of uh, people who were literate. Um, most kids went to school. Uh, over 90% of people were literate, and uh, they took their books and newspapers seriously. Now, this is in great contrast to, say, the American South, where very few people uh, were literate. And uh, this was very much a bragging point for people in the Midwest. I can remember reading the diaries of some Civil War soldiers for the Midwest, and they were marching through the South and noticing these primitive conditions and that there were no books on the shelves of these Southern homes. So hmm. this, uh, this contrast was very visible to many people in the 19th century. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Just a side question, uh, given the, the dearth of historical studies of the Midwest, where did you get all of your research materials? Were you, did you have to go to a lot, of, uh, a lot of remote archives, small libraries throughout the region? Well, I've been working on this, I would say, since the mid-90s, really, and accumulating materials. And in, in that long period of time, I've been making notes uh, about various aspects of this book and filing them away. Um, that's what historians do. They live through bankers' boxes. And um, so, yes. Uh, and also, I would say I heavily relied upon the old uh, journals published by Midwestern historical societies. This is another sign of the literacy and high degree of interest in books and culture in the Midwest is that early on, many of these states formed state historical societies, and uh, they gathered and kept the records of these states, and often they published a quarterly or monthly journal. And many of those are actually available online now, uh, but uh, very few people go back and read the Ohio History Journal from the 1870s. But if you do, it's very rewarding. You learn a lot about these places, and much of this can be done online. You also had an active lecture circuit in, in the region, too, didn't you? 
Yeah, this, uh, this was a major component of civic life in the Midwest. And people like Emerson, for example, had a very heavy speaking circuit in the Midwest, and his uh, lectures would bring in a thousand people, and it would be a cultural event for a town. And one thing I found interesting about Emerson's uh, comments about traveling in the Midwest is he wanted to stick to the states of the Midwest. He didn't want to go past Kansas, and he definitely didn't want to go into the South because he was uh, against slavery, and uh, he didn't he knew he wouldn't find an audience there, and they, he knew those weren't his people. Uh, but yes, this lecture circuit was very robust uh, throughout the 19th century, and every serious town had a lyceum, and they would set up um, major halls for lectures. And in the later part of the 19th century, Chautauqua became uh, very active. And if you look closely, if you're traveling around the Midwest and you pay attention, you'll often see old signs or old markers for this is where the Chautauqua took place in this town from 1870 to 1930. Uh, often um, near a lake, uh, there would be Chautauqua, Chautauqua grounds set up and it would be a week-long festival. And like lecturers would come through and there would be speeches given and major politicians would come and, and talk. Um, we um, often use a lake in South Dakota called Lake Campesca. And on the north side, on a hill overlooking the lake, there's a sign about this used to be the Chautauqua grounds and William Jennings Bryan spoke here in this day. And um, this was just built into the culture of the Midwest. All right. You also referred to the Midwest as developing uh, serious colleges and universities that offered, quote, a distinctively Midwestern education. Uh, what were the ingredients of, of that distinctive education? Well, one of the first, I mean, Ohio being the first state uh, in the Midwest, let's take that as an example. Uh, by the mid-19th century, there were 20 or so colleges already set up in uh, Ohio, um, you know, in comparison to other states, Massachusetts, South Carolina, which had a couple of colleges. So this was uh, part and parcel of the development of the state. And these were often Christian colleges uh, set up by Christian denominations. And uh, instead of the more formal uh, college education that you might find in New England or in Europe, uh, these colleges uh, made adjustments to life on the frontier, and they often would allow students to attend if they worked on the college farm or if they helped cut trees in the forest near the college. Um, they were called manual labor schools in many cases. And early on, uh, interestingly, these colleges, many of them, began as uh, uh, co-education colleges, um, and so women attended many of them, and they also were biracial, and uh, many African Americans would attend colleges like Oberlin, for example, probably most famously in Ohio. As, as the Midwest coalesced uh, into 
its own identity, you know, as you put it, different from New England, the Deep South, the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, what was what was the the ethnic and and racial makeup in the Midwest? Well, early on, uh, the first people to uh, kind of come across the Ohio River were uh, some backcountry Southerners. And I emphasize backcountry as opposed to uh, planters from the Tidewater because they would be a distinct group. And then through the Erie Canal would come a lot of settlers from New England. And then there would be uh, settlers from Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Germans and Pen Pennsylvania Quakers. And then soon you had a wave of foreign immigrants. Uh, the first major group would be the Irish because of the potato famine in the 1840s, but soon after became a wave of Germans. And then later on in the 19th century, many Scandinavians. Uh, the Midwest is of course known for its Norwegian bachelor farmers, thanks to Garrison Keillor, but of course other groups, uh, Swedes and Danish, uh, came in too. And they would be, I think, more prominent in the Western regions of the Midwest, uh, like the Dakotas and Minnesota. Uh, so that was a, a quite a group, quite a mixture of people. And so no one ethnic group could dominate, uh, which created the conditions for the pluralism that was uh, defined the culture of the Midwest. Right. As the war broke out in, in 1861, uh, did we see some tensions break out in, in the Midwest or did the war have more of the war itself have more of a unifying effect? Well, the, the war certainly unified the people within the Midwest, but it, the war was triggered uh, by deep and deepening divisions between the Midwest and the South. And you could arguably say that the Midwest triggered the Civil War in a way because the South became more and more aggressive about expanding slavery westward and more and more aggressive about recapturing its slaves that went across the Ohio River into the Midwest. This created a lot of frictions between Midwestern states who were trying to help uh, people flee the slave South uh, the big triggering moment came when the Kansas-Nebraska bill was passed, and it seemed like it was possible that slavery would be allowed into the territories, which had been uh, ag agreed earlier years that this would not happen. Well, the, the, the reaction in the Midwest was very swift, and in little country meeting houses and churches in the Midwest, in Michigan and Wisconsin and Iowa, people came together and formed a new anti-slavery party, which they named the Republican Party. And its great success, its first success was electing Abraham Lincoln of Illinois president in 1860. And of course, the South could not abide this and uh, seceded from the Union, triggering the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln um, the Midwesterner was in charge of prosecuting the war and his favorite generals were these Midwesterners like U Ulysses S. Grant and, and, um, and William Tecumseh Sherman. And while the Union armies floundered in the East, uh, Grant and Sherman won great victories 
uh, just south of the Ohio River. Uh, they recruited towns, uh, you know, regiments from Midwestern towns, and they marched them south across the Ohio River into the south and won many victories. And finally, Lincoln brought uh, Grant to Washington to run the entire war. So you can, and it should be said, the war was funded by uh, the wealth of the Midwest, and the war was made possible by foodstuffs from the Midwest. So uh, I've seen Civil War historians say, without the men and materiel from the Midwest, the, the cause probably would have been lost. Uh, side question, what was the fate of Native Americans in the region apart from the war? I mean, before the war, what happened to the Native American tribes in Indiana, Ohio, Illinois? Well, the United States acquired the Midwest after the American Revolution. And of course, there was a lot of history that came prior to that. Probably most importantly, the French and Indian War or the Seven Years War um, in the 1750s and 60s, which involved many of the tribes of the Midwest. And they were on both sides, the French side and the uh, British side. Um, and once the war was over, um, the Americans took control of the Midwest. Uh, they were handed the Midwest uh, by treaty uh, by the British. And some of the uh, animosities from those earlier wars carried over. And so there were battles between the new American army and these tribes in the Midwest who had previously been allied with the British. And the British hung around because they thought the American state was weak and wouldn't last. And so the British uh, continued to uh, foment revolution there and arm uh, the Native Americans. So in a series of very interesting uh, battles in the 1790s, uh, the Americans and the tribes in the Midwest fought it out. And the Americans didn't do very well early on, uh, lost a couple of key battles. Uh, but finally, at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, uh, took control of the region and were able to finally drive out the British, but not before the War of 1812 flared up all these tensions again. Uh, so the, the Americans were in charge at that point, and this began this period of treaty making and removal um, that uh, people, some people are familiar with. So tribes in the Midwest would be encouraged uh, to trade their lands for lands out in Kansas or other places, and some of them did that. And uh, some of them did stay, um, but and some of them became citizens. Uh, it was a real combination of factors. In fact, it's a very complicated history, given that there are so many tribes and so many different locations. But I, um, I do refer in the book uh, to the key works on these questions, and I really want people to read them and understand where the book begins. But I began in about 1800, after many of those uh, battles had already taken place. Why does Ohio produce so many presidents? Well, Ohio um, was, you know. Well, let, let's go ahead and list, list them all, right? I mean, after the war, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's quite a run. Well, yes, and 
a lot of them were Civil War generals. Uh, a lot of them had service in the Civil War. Of course, uh, you're referring to Rutherford B. Hayes and William McKinley and James Garfield. Um, Garfield, by the way, I've really become interested in because he was uh, he was an amazing man. And who remembers uh, President Garfield? Nobody. But he was uh, one of these exemplars of Midwestern culture we all need to remember. Uh, but yeah, the, the Midwest dominated American politics in the latter half of the 19th century. And a lot of these um, Union War generals from Ohio who became president um, were not shy about reminding voters about who won the Civil War and all the bad things the South had done. This was known as waving the bloody shirt at the time or constantly reminding voters of uh whose side the South was on or how the South has had seceded. And the most common uh, form of Midwestern politics during this era was going to give a speech to the Grand Army of the Republic Lodge, which were these uh, civic uh, clubs started by Union War veterans, by a Union War veteran from Illinois, um, where politics could, took place. And you know, you can see uh, the complaints constantly by Southerners about uh, these Midwestern presidents constantly bringing up uh, the war and keeping the memory of the war alive. And uh, that was to, um, to their political advantage. So they did so, and rightly so. The book is The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. There is much more to discuss in the book. We, we really just scratched the, the surface there. There's deep history of, of society and culture and laws and, and, and the war and everything else for different states and, and regions. But for now, John Lauk, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.